as we move now into the third of those periods of 700 years, what I'd like to do is to tell the story of one strand of spiritual awakening that we're going we're gonna to trace the whole pattern of strands of spiritual awakening as we go along. But here is just an example. I'm using this as a, as a way of showing you how God will plant seeds and then he'll see them grow. They'll grow through generations. And then suddenly it's time for that seed to break forth into flower. And that, uh, that produces an enormous transformational awakening or revival season that really has a great worldwide impact. And so um, here's an example, the Moravians, the Moravian Church, the Moravian Awakening. And let's just go back to the 14th century now, and the church is in a, a place of almost like quicksand. It's caught in a trap, and the more it struggles, the, the more it just sinks deeper and deeper into a morass of worldliness and bad doctrine that's connected with worldliness. You know, for example, inventing the idea of indulgences, okay, which is if you come to the church and pay money, then we'll pray a prayer and your relative who's in purgatory will be set free and will find their way to heaven because... The church has the keys to the kingdom, and the kingdom is defined as heaven in the clouds, sort of. And so the next uh, period of time is going to see God intervening to bring the church back to the original vision of the Bible. Okay, the original vision of the Bible is a kingdom vision and it's based on a seven-part pattern of life that we described at the beginning of this series of teachings. Okay, so in the 13th century, as we're moving towards the end of the Middle Ages, many, many people are seeing that the church is in deep trouble, and they're hungering after uh, the truth, uh, uh, purity of heart, righteousness. They know that something has gone terribly wrong with the church. They don't know how it happened. They don't see where th the church went wrong, but they do see the terrible decadence, the uh, almost the free flow of strange doctrines, and nobody knows what to do. But in the 13th century, you have what I call nameless, faceless people. Um, John Wycliffe has been sort of placed in a position of leadership of this group of people, but modern scholarship sort of denies that he had that much to do with it. He was one of many people who were um, getting really, really upset with the whole state of the church, including the monasteries, um, the church at Rome, the church at Avignon. The whole, the whole situation 
was stinking to high heaven, and and so there was a lot of of stuff going on, things being said, and one of the things that was happening uh, has come to be known as the Lollard Movement. Okay, imagine a group of stonemasons or bricklayers, and they become a an artisan's reading society. All right, and so someone is going to provide them with a a, a, a gospel of Mark, shall we say, in Middle English. In other words, it's been translated into Middle English because some people are beginning to realize that ordinary folks need to be able to read the Bible in their own language. And so here are the stonemasons or the bricklayers, and they are going to meet regularly and they're going to read together this Gospel of Mark or this uh, other particular piece of the New Testament, uh, the Roman the letter to the Romans, or some particular letter that's been written out in English, and now it's an artisan read, reading society that is going to read this. And they're going to struggle together to uh, to live out the pattern of teaching that they're hearing now and and meeting together to to learn this for themselves and this is not under the control of the church or under uh, any kind of denomination it's, it's just free flowing it's just moving out there and of course there's stuff that's going to happen that's not going to be quite right uh, because there's no real leadership there's no one person that's guiding it. Um, it's all just going out there. It's, it's, it's the, the hunger for God that is happening at the grassroots level when the church itself has become hopelessly corrupt. All right, so now, um, and by the way, the word lollard comes from the, the word uh, for weed seeds. And so the, the, uh, uh, the established church have given it this uh, uncomplimentary name, but it sort of describes, it's just, it's just going out, it's like weed seeds. But of course, what the established church uh, considers weeds might be not exactly what God considers weeds. The point that I'm making here is that uh, uh, people are generally looking for an alternative and the Lollard movement is what's going to happen in the late 13th and then into the 14th century. All right, in the 15th century, there's going to be a group of Bohemians and um, there's going to be a connection here, and they're going to take some of the ideas and some of the concepts back with them to Bohemia, which is modern-day Czechoslovakia. A guy named John Huss is going to pick that up in the, in the 15th century. John Huss is going to preach two things mainly. One is, if you're a Christian, you need to repent of your sin. And secondly, all this about indulgences is pure poppycock, and uh, we need to reject the church's attempt to use their position to just get get money. And uh, so 
he he's going right against the established church, which remember is a power and might church, and they are going to play by power and might rules. So they lure John Huss into a convention, a convening of uh, of religious authorities where he has been given a um, safe conduct pass, as it were. And um, But you know the way the power in my church plays. They're going to arrest him, and they're going to say, uh, we had our fingers crossed when we gave you that safe conduct pass. And so they're going to burn him at the stake. And here's uh, one of our very first martyrs. And martyrs are going to be pretty frequent from now on. Everywhere um, that you have a group of people who are boldly confronting the power and might church, um, there's going to be a lot of martyrs, a lot of martyrs. And so the, um, John Huss is going to um, be the beginning of a um, Bohemian Brethren Church. It's not going to have that name yet. But the mantle of leadership is going to go to a guy named Gregory the Patriarch, and um, pretty soon uh, the, the name of the group of people, the Christian church that he's going to be leading, will be called the Bohemian Brethren. And for the next um, many years, the Bohemian Brethren are going to be severely persecuted. Um, by the 17th century, the leadership is going to go to John Comenius, and Comenius is, uh, is going to, this persecution is going to be so bad that um, they're going to all flee to Poland, which is just across the border from um, Czechoslovakia. And they're going to be in Poland for a while, but then they're going to just come back across the border into Moravia, which was linked up with Bohemia, kind of the neighbor. And from now on uh, in the uh, 17th century, they're going to be called Moravians. All right. So now, in the meantime, as all of this is happening, the basic uh, ideas of John Huss are going to land in Germany and they're going to be taken up by Martin Luther and the many other reformers, Swiss reformers, German reformers, uh, the many other reformers of the Great Reformation. Martin Luther is going to uh, attack his 95 theses, theses, which is 95 statements about what true Christianity is and what's gone wrong with the Catholic Church. Uh, his his goal is to is to get a more pure Christianity, but once again he's confronting the power and might church. But uh, the the ninety five theses are basically the same ideas that that Huss John Huss had had, and that he died proclaiming. And for example, the first uh, of the ninety five theses that Martin Luther nailed. Uh, to the door of the Wittenberg Cathedral, is this. When our Lord and Master Jesus Christ said, Repent, he willed the entire life of believers to be one of repentance. 
So what Luther and what um, this whole strand of leaders, new leadership is saying is, God wants to write his laws on our hearts, and this is his permanent will for us. And so here we have that third of the, of the seven ingredients. Do you see that? So what we're doing is once we're, we're, we're gaining the Bible as the source of vision for the Christian life, now we're going to start figuring out what what are the ingredients of real Christianity? Okay, so one of them is, yeah, we're going to let Jesus write his laws on our hearts. That means repentance. That means asking God to change our hearts and to write righteousness on our hearts instead of all this sin that they're seeing in the church that people have just adjusted themselves to. Okay, and then Martin Luther is going to say, Prayer is the almighty queen of human destiny. All right, so what, what he's doing there is prayer is the authority of the Christian over nations. So you see, here's another one of those ingredients coming back and making itself at home in the lives of major numbers of Christians. Another basic doctrine in the Great Reformation is going to be the priesthood of all believers, that every single believer in Jesus Christ is given their own personal connection with God. And that makes us a royal priesthood. Here's another one of those ingredients. You see, so here we are, we're discovering real Christianity. Hey, what a concept. And so the, the Great Reformation is transforming Germany and Germany is becoming Protestant. Germany is becoming reformed. All right, so now in 1724, one of these reformed believers, Nicholas Ludwig Count von Sinzendorf, who was one of the wealthiest men in Europe at that point, located in Saxony, which is in East Germany. Okay, he's going to get the idea of, of bringing these Moravians, alias the Bohemian Brethren, and bringing them from their places of hiding and uh, persecution and uh, uh, isolation and, and bring them all to his uh, estate in Saxony. And, and that's what he does. And almost immediately in 1724, he's going to regret what he did because these people are coming and they're, they're living on a, uh, a kind of communal or a community situation and they're arguing with each other and they're blaming uh, each other for different things and uh, claiming to be better than each other and um, uh, just uh, leveling accusations even at Zinzendorf. And so this is not a, a nice scene. So Count von Zinzendorf decides that he's going to lay down the law. If you people want to stay here, then here are the, the rules of the community. And one of the things that uh, he does is he, he organizes the community into prayer watches. So as they're realizing that um, their behaviors are not um, 
Christ-like, and they receive this confrontation, and they realize that they're in a place where they have to, shall we say, toe the mark, um, they become more humble. Oh, my goodness. And they begin to listen to correction. They begin to form themselves into prayer watches. They, they form a much more um, amenable community. And um, whether it's the prayer or the correction or what it is, the whole atmosphere of the community begins to change dramatically. And one day, these folks are going in to church at a nearby uh, church uh, called Berthelsdorf. And I want to read to you uh, what happens from this uh, recent uh, book, um, the most recent of the biographies of Zinzendorf. Uh, and, and, here, and here's where God suddenly brings this whole movement to flower. As Zinzendorf began a prayer of confession in the small church at Berthelsdorf, the pregnant heavens over Hernhut finally burst open, and the power and glory of God descended on the assembled people. The sense of God's presence went off the scale, beyond words, beyond description, beyond understanding. Every account struggles and fails to convey adequately the experience. The Spirit of God came like a windstorm, mighty, rushing, irresistible. The love and holiness of God touched the people like a fire stream, heartwarming, dangerous, life-branding. The reality of the experience was undeniable. Even as far away as Hungary, Christian David and Melchior Nitschmann, two of the guys in the community who happened to be away traveling, were overcome by an overwhelming impulse to pray. On their return, the first question they asked was, what was happening at 10 a.m. on the morning of the 13th of August? They were amazed, but somehow not surprised, to discover that they had been touched by the Spirit of God at exactly the same time as the outpouring in Berthelsdorf, of which they had been completely unaware. Wow, and from that point on, the community, the Moravian community, uh, with Count von Zinzendorf, is going to be one of the most transformational communities in Western history. Just to list the things that were birthed out of that community. First of all, the 24-7 prayer that was already started is going to last for a 100 years and become a major witness of the power of prayer, especially 24-7 prayer. And of course, we see that in our time. There's all kinds of 24-7 prayer movements in our time that use the Hernhut community of Zinzendorf as a model. And secondly, there is going to be an awakening to missions. You know, it's like for um, 150 years, 200 years, here are these uh, Reformed Christians who just have, haven't quite awakened to the Great Commission. You know, they've awakened to a lot of different things, but the Great Commission is not one of them. Go, therefore, and make disciples of all nations. And so suddenly, 
this Moravian community is going to be filled with the passion of taking the gospel out, 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 going, going forth. And uh, so the first group is going to go to uh, the Isle of St. Thomas in the Caribbean and, and bring the gospel to slaves. There's going to be another group going to Eskimos in the very far frozen north. There's going to be another group going into America to establish the very first communities in Ohio, and they're going to bear witness to the Lenape Indians, and other groups of Indians are going to receive uh, the gospel from the Moravians, and, and the Moravians are going to do a good job of it too. And so here's the missions movement, literally in its infancy, 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 almost like it's it's hardly out of the womb. It's so small, and we're going to see where this goes later on. But um, here's the missions movement. A third major result of the Moravian prayer and witness is going to happen uh, in 1739 at 3 in the morning on New Year's Day when... Uh, a group of English clergymen, including John and Charles Wesley and George Whitfield and several others, are going to be with the Moravians at Fetter Lane in London, and the Spirit of God is going to fall again, just like it did at the beginning, and that's going to be the start of the English Great Awakening. And then on top of all that, if that was not enough, it's going to be Zinzendorf, that starts the very first Messianic Jewish community. And, and this is another vision on the heart of God, you know, beginning to, to say that uh, God is not done with the Jews, and there, there are Jews that are going to rejoice in Jesus, but they're not going to give up their Judaism, their Jewishness, their Jewish culture, and what makes them uniquely and distinctly Jewish. They're going to hang on to that, but then they're also be, going to be believers in the Messiah. And the, the very first modern Messianic Jewish community is going to start right here. Well, what I want to say is that there is yet another thing, um, and that is that this, all of this is going to be a, a witness and a permanent inspiration and a vision-casting event that is going to inspire future generations. So in the future, we're going, to, we're going to look at Jonathan Goforth, who brought the gospel to Manchuria. And he's going to read the story of Zinzendorf and the, uh, the beginning of the English Great Awakening. And he's going to, he's going to have these, these stories just stir his heart and stir his heart and stir his heart. And he can't get away from them. And he just keeps saying, why can't this happen today? Why can't this happen now? And by, <laughs> in the time of God, in God's perfect time, Goforth is going to be the guy that brings it to Manchuria. And so he's, he's also going to see it come to Korea, and we'll, we'll tell that story in their proper time. But my point here is that the stories of the past can become 
an inspiration for the present. And that's kind of why I'm telling these stories. I'm hoping they'll be an inspiration to you.